This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Paul Grain Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Time as a Resource. Occult Blues Brothers. The Gen Con Auction with Jim Kitchen. And Protecting the Spanish Habsburgs. I think it's fair to say that our heads are full of ideas for games. Sorry, can't hear you over all these game ideas in my head. If you, cherished listener, are anything like us, you've also got some great ideas for games in your head. But unlike award-winning podcast hosting game designers like us, you may not know what to do next. Atlas Games to the rescue! The White Box, created by Atlas Games and Game Playwright, is a game design workshop in a box. It's got a ton of generic components like meeples, cubes, Dice, tokens, and discs. And it's got a 200-page book of 25 essays about game design and publishing, with topics like refining your design, playtesting, crowdfunding, and how to work a convention. In short, the white box has everything you need to get your game idea out of your head and onto the table. Learn more at atlas-games.com slash thewhitebox. Or follow the link in the show notes. You can get the white box right now everywhere tabletop games are sold. But Ken, here's the rub. I also can't even hear you over these game ideas. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more to the Gaming Hut. And here in the Gaming Hut, we're enjoying a soupçon of absinthe with our Doritos. If I'm using the word enjoying correctly, which I'm not sure I am, because... (laughs) Patreon backer Ken Ringwald has requested an entire gaming hut on character time mechanics in RPGs and how the Yellow King RPG handles this differently than previous games. Robin, what do you got for him? Yeah, so uh, never let it be said that uh, there isn't a Patreon backer ready to uh, pick up a hint. Uh, this is something I alluded to in our lightning round episode. Uh, and the original question was, what would I go back in time and change about older games? And that is uh, games that use time as a resource. So let's unpack uh, when that works well and and uh, uh, when it doesn't. So there are two ways, uh, principally, that time can be a resource. Either time can be a penalty that you pay. You have to spend a certain amount of time to use a Canadian analogy in the penalty box, uh, as it were, uh, when you, uh, uh, mo- most often when you get injured or perhaps you could, you know, have some other uh, thing happen to a character. You could have you know, your Delta Green agents could be put on desk duty for six months for some sort of infraction or whatever. Um, but most often it's, you know, prolonged healing and convalescence. Or, for example, there's a regrow limb spell in RuneQuest where, you know, it takes you six months to gradually magically regrow a limb. And uh, the other, the, the positive way in which time can be a resource is it's a thing that you spend in order to build stuff. So uh, that can be anything from, you know, the wizards in the medieval uh, wizard monastery have to go off and hit the books for uh, three months in order to uh, perfect their latest alchemical experiment. And then they uh, come back or, you know, you have to spend a certain amount of time dealing with your uh, community that you're trying to protect in the urban campaign you're running or, or, or whatever that, whatever the thing you're building, or, you know, you have to, 
spend X amount of time building your bunker for your uh, canned goods in your post-apocalyptic world. Um, and the issue with that is that are, are these great leaps of time, the bits of time that are uh, not within the pacing of a standard uh, episode, who pays the cost of those uh, time expenditures? And, and Ken, I've, uh, I'm going to turn my rhetorical question into a, a question of you. Who, who typically pays the cost? The GM. The GM pays the cost. Because they have to answer the questions of, hey, since we were spending three months while uh, he was healing his leg, um, can we go and do all these 19,000 other things that in no way could have happened in three months, but any individual one of them could have happened in three months? And you want to say, look, he broke his leg. We're just skipping ahead three months, for God's sake. Spend some time with your wife and kids. There's monsters. But you can't do that. Because it's a game. Right. And also skipping ahead, if you do skip ahead, which is the solution to what does everybody else do during this time, then it's not a cost. You just skipped ahead. Didn't mean anything. Right. It's just a hand wavy thing you put in your rules text. You could have regrown that leg magically overnight. And that's not realistic, Robin. <laughs> yes, that, that, that would be totally weird to magically regrow your leg in a way that was convenient for the narrative. Yeah, that's crazy people talk. <laughs> I don't know if you know how myth works, but that doesn't happen in myth, Robin. Exactly. Except uh, always. Yes. Anyway. Or, or in myth, you just don't get your leg chopped off in the first place, but. Uh, it's not, that's not Gloranthin myth, my friend. That's not, yeah. <laughs> and there's way more, anyway, there's more limbs being torn off in Gloranthin everyday life than there are in, in myth as well. Myths are about the problems you face in everyday life, Robin, like yeah. having your limbs torn off. Exactly. Um, so whenever I see something like that where the, and there's lots of situations actually where a supposed, uh, cost to the player is actually borne by the GM. Arguably even player death. Nine times out of ten, it's more annoying to the GM than it is to the player because they get to invent a cool new character and you have to go, oh, I spent months weaving all those plot lines around you and there's the, the League of Assassins was going to attack you next week and there's the, you're vital to the plot with the king. Oh, are you sure you're, uh, but that is a rant for another day. Yes. So, uh, first of all, in uh, Gumshoe One-to-One and in uh, Yellow King, which uh, borrows and adapts some of the ideas that originally uh, came out of One-to-One, I wanted to make sure that when time was used as a resource, it uh, always was contained within the framework of play rather than being a hand-wavy thing that then becomes annoying uh, outside of that. So... Uh, the idea in one-to-one in particular is that bad things can happen to you that cost you time, but that cost is borne out within the adventure. So, for example, if the uh, Nazi agent takes his switchblade and uh, uh, wrecks your uh, tires or he pours carbolic acid into your engine, that means it costs you time because now you have to, you know, call a tow truck or uh Go to your uh, friend who runs a garage and you've got to cool your heels for a while and there's something you can't do. So there's a, that is a cost, but it, it's always tied to some specific inconvenience that you, you know, it costs you X amount of on stage investigative time in which something else bad can happen that wouldn't have happened to you, um, had you uh, had the challenge that led to that gone the other way, right? If you'd spotted him just as he was about to pour the acid in the thing, you would have stopped him and you don't have this break in the action. Um, now, I think, practically speaking, within a game, it is also perfectly acceptable to just have a thing happen that is an emotional downbeat and has no further 
repercussion that doesn't actually make your uh, scenario more difficult or give you a penalty later on or, or however you choose to do that, but that when uh, you are portraying the loss of time specifically, uh, that that happens within the, the way the game is set up. And, and one-to-one, if you have that block of time, that means that that's more likely to trigger an antagonist reaction when the bad guys are going to come and, and mess with you because you're busy dealing with your car, so they have time to break into your apartment or uh, time to go uh, uh, whisk away that uh, uh, hostage that you thought you were going to get to uh, uh, protection, or uh, they will dig a hole under your apartment building and uh, suck you down into the land of the, the serpent people, as happens uh, constantly. As, in, as will happen yes. in detective fiction. <laughs> it's a standard thing. Yes, you know uh, what did Chandler say? When in doubt, have two men come in with the door with the gun, or have the protagonist dragged into the lair of the serpent people. Yes, it's a, a noir 101. Um, and so uh, taking that idea further in Yellow King, which also has uh, cards that impose uh, ongoing status effects, I found that it was useful to slice time even further, or rather to acknowledge the existence of two kinds of time, both world time, which is 60 minutes passing for the character, or table time, which is 60 minutes passing for the players at the table. And so uh, for pacing reasons, for example, sometimes you want to feel that a uh, either a resource has been used up and it takes a while to get it back, or logically speaking, if you get hurt, that there should be some recognition of that somehow in the uh, course of the, the adventure. So uh, perhaps... Uh, that is, uh, in some cases, that is measured by, uh, you know, you have a penalty for an hour of table time, or perhaps you have a penalty until you uh, next succeed at a given uh, task. So you have the notion that things have negative effects or sometimes positive effects, but mostly negative. It's it's the king in yellow. <laughs> He's going to mess right, with yeah. you. Um, so that things are taking place in time uh, the way that you are. But again, uh, that is constrained within the parts of time that actually matter uh, in a game. Uh, so, Ken, how have you uh, tackled the issue of of uh, the passage of time, either as, as a resource or um, in some other way in your designs? I mean, first of all, you have to give a brief shout-out to designs that recognize the problem and work around it, such as Ars Magica and Pendragon, where the ritual passage of time is a feature of the game, and so therefore the question of what am I doing in winter is not how many million things am I shopping for? What stupid threads am I following? But what of these winter activities are you up to? And similarly with Ars Magica, because you have multiple characters, having one character sidelined by injury or by doing magic research doesn't derail the game while you everyone sits around. You just send one of the backup characters out there, and I think that points to a good way to uh, to handle this at the table, even if that's not part of the system is that if you've got a character who's out, make sure that uh, it, there is a cost to them being flat on their back in the hospital while their brother-in-law or their dentist or whatever other uh, ridiculous contrivance used for a Cthulhu character to show up goes out and starts being uh, munched down. The new guy from accounting is dragged in by Delta Green and sent off to fight Deep Ones hideously unprepared, uh, something like that. In my own designs, I prefer to use character time as a resource with a ticking clock for bad guys. And when I'm, for example, in Knights Black Agents, there are, you know, things that you can do if you're, say, tricking out your car. 
um, that takes a certain number of days, and then you can spend mechanics points to make it uh, shorter and shorter because you're a super spy, and so you can do it in a montage instead of at the time it would actually take to put armor plating on your car. But those uh, time increments, they cost you basically ability points, and then... Uh, to, to not spend them. And if you do use them, then you're assumed that, oh, well, you've given the bad guys three more days to, to, to do things that you needed your car to stop them for. And the, uh, GM is implicitly or explicitly invited to advance the, the bad guy clock by that amount of time. And so either provide a, um, uh, a ritual in which it is expected that uh, time is broken out into these chunks and the expenditure of a chunk is a standard part of gameplay or uh, provide a ticking time bomb such that your losing time has a visible, you know, now they've reinforced there are nine uh, drug dealers at the summit instead of four because you took a long time uh, building your car. Right. And uh, so I think uh, one of the tricks that you allude to when you talk about, uh, particularly about the, the longer time frame uh, stuff, is that if there is a significant amount of uh, kind of between adventures time, if the season advances, the trick is to make sure that every player has some way to invest their time if it isn't stolen from them. So that the idea in Ars Magica, of course, is just that while the wizards are researching, the actual fun low-level characters go off and do things. Um, but you could also have a, a situation where every uh, specialist class has some way of advancing toward a group goal and or or an individual goal um that uh and whether you choose it to be something that the the group all has to get together and agree well you know Sophia you're going to go and learn the exorcism spell during this time because we're tired of being hit by demons and Chet um you're going to work on the anti-demon gun uh that uh gives everybody a stake in who's who's losing time uh alternately i guess you could have a game that has where you come together to cooperate during the game and then there's also sort of a a pvp element off to the side where you know, when, when you're not going down into the, into the dungeon, you're all, uh, sort of rival, uh, nobles and stuff. And so, uh, you know, you can either spend time increasing the yield of, of your crops by, uh, teaching your, uh, your serfs, uh, more efficient, uh, uh agricultural uh, methods, or you're just lying, uh, there in the, in bed, regrow- regrowing your limb. And so that would again create a sense of, you know, that this actually matters and have a, has a consequence beyond inconveniencing the GM because uh, there are all sorts of ways players for you to inconvenience your GM. But we don't want the, the rule set doing it as well. Right. The sort of kindred question is that there are time resources that are sort of positive ones in that you can carry your spell until you have a rest in Dungeons & Dragons or such and such an effect only lasts for a scene as defined uh, by you know the, the, the game or that you... Uh, you know, uh, you know, you have until dawn to do X and, uh, get a, a power that lasts that long. And so the inverse of the question becomes a way for the players to actually have to think about prioritizing themselves and getting stuff accomplished because the knowledge that they have either expended a resource that they can't get back until e- exact time, which is sort of like being injured. Or they have a resource that they have to uh, use or lose because they're going to lose it at the end of the time anyway is another thing, another way to make them think about it. So it could even be a combo platter where, 
you know, the creature has knocked uh, the character flat on their back and they're, and then they're convalescing. But while they're convalescing with the creature's ichor in them, they can be hypnotized and used as a link to find out where the creature is, a la Mina in Dracula. And that can provide, uh, players with a, with, with a mechanical interest in keeping track of this time as well. Is that a thing? Yeah, I think the way to, to advance that a bit would be to allow players to think of it in, in terms of you have X number of turns in which you can do a bunch of actions. Here's a bullet point list of possible actions that you could be doing. Because often when you just say to players, uh, whether you're dealing with this problem specifically or just in general, if you say, so do the rest of you do anything in this time while... Uh, Chet is working on his demon gun. They, they'll often go, oh, uh, uh, I guess not. And if you have a list of stuff for them to do, uh, that's uh, more fun for them. But then the flip side of that is, uh, do you really want everybody doing something separate and somewhat uninteresting until Chet gets the demon gun? Or again, do you want to uh, fast forward to him having the demon gun, having paid some price for it other than time? And speaking of time, this segment is out of that. But if we, if we take a, a short rest, like a commercial break-sized rest, we'll get all our points back and we'll be able to do another segment. Sweet! In the 1960s, the CIA hunted Yeti in Tibet, built aircraft that touched the edge of space, and experimented on mind control. But there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the FBI infiltrated occult movements, wiretapped congressmen, and winked at the mafia. Yeah, but there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the Marines invaded Cambodia, the Navy listened to the Pacific Deeps, and the Air Force covered up UFOs. Oh boy, is there more to that story. Those stories all touched the surface of the secret world, the poisonous, unnatural world world of the Cthulhu mythos. A government program named Majestic tries to weaponize the unnatural. A government program named Delta Green tries to destroy the unnatural. In the fall of Delta Green, you play the agents of Delta Green, caught between your oath to America and your duty to humanity, caught between a world on fire and the icy cold of other dimensions. Written by Kenneth Height, The Fall of Delta Green adapts Arc Dream Publishing's Delta Green, the role-playing game, to the award-winning gumshoe engine. The Fall of Delta Green is a standalone game of standing alone against inevitable destruction. Delta Green falls in 1970. The world falls shortly thereafter. The Fall of Delta Green. Grab it in your store or from the Pelgrane Press website. It's Delta Green. It's the 1960s. In Gumshoe, what are you waiting for? The end of the world? It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. Patreon backer Chris Camfield asks... Can Ken and or Robin explain the hidden occult significance of the Blues Brothers? Robin? Uh, well, of course, uh, as we know, uh, the Blues Brothers are on a mission from God. And uh, it's uh, specifically they uh, receive their mission from the Catholic Church. So clearly the original occult tradition that they come from, and they're, they're going to be, they're going to turn out to be syncretists. Well, you know, let's just, let's just spoil that up front. Uh, but <laughs> the, the original tradition that they're coming from is Martinism. They're Martinists. They are theurgists uh, who, uh, like the uh, some of the uh, French occultists uh, of the Belle Epoque, who appear in uh, the Ella King role-playing game, they uh, draw magical power uh, from 
their uh, Christian and specifically uh, Catholic faith. Um, now, you might be saying, did the Catholic Church a- approve of this? Well, historically, uh, with actual Martinists, no. Um, and no. also, uh, in the movie, uh, the, the nuns are, are somewhat threatening force, who perhaps right. uh, we see them uh, trying to keep their uh, theurgic uh, power uh, under wraps. But uh, uh, definitely, I think they are on, uh, they say so, they're on a mission from God. We see them on a, a quest uh, to assemble uh, 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 musical apostles, which is to say the uh, core of the uh, Stax Records uh, backup band, uh, which is the best kind of apostles, in my opinion, and uh, and then continue their uh, their quest, uh, meeting uh, various uh, psychopomps along the way. Uh, all of that is true, and the evidence of their mission from God is present both uh, uh, narratively and diegetically within the film, revealed uh, to us, the viewer, as a beam of light, and by the uh, holy, miraculous powers of their chariot, the Bluesmobile, uh, which then uh, collapses, and this is how you can tell it's just not a regular old magic car, uh, when they have reached their destination. The, their horse has died at the at the grail moment, um, uh, and so they, they it is no longer needed. The hand of God is withdrawn from the Bluesmobile, and it falls apart into a million pieces. So it is clear that they are on some sort of an occult pilgrimage. Now, to the possibility that they are Martinists, I would mention, first of all, that uh, Martin de Pasquale, the founder of Martinism, created Martinism during or after a voyage to the West Indies. This is historically true. He went to Saint-Domingue and came back full of magic. And of course, what is Saint-Domingue now? It is good old Haiti. And uh, I would posit that when you have two figures in black and white that operate across boundaries of black and white continuously identified as brothers using ceremonial ritual music and dance to raise occult power that are brought on a mission to the literal center of the world, that is to say Chicago, uh, that is a, a tale of Vodun. That is a voodoo story that uh, the Blues Brothers are emissaries of Gede, Lord of the Dead, Baron Cimeter. Uh, they are brought across the, um, uh, the the veil symbolically. For example, Jake is released from Joliet, and then they return to Joliet at the end of the at the end of the the story, indicating that it is a story also in which one brother is dead, one brother is alive. That is how they gain their magic. And, of course, every, every Vodunist says, yes, my magic is holy. It is uh, brought to me by the Loa, who serve the creator. So there is not an either or, as you say, it's syncretic, uh, between Martinism and Vodun. Uh, they are basically operating in a uh, fairly standard quest of the dead, uh, an unfinished uh, task uh, that someone died leaving unfinished. Jake uh, was sent to Juliet before they could pay, uh, use their, their stolen money to pay for the... Uh, uh, the mortgage at the, at the, at the church, uh, or the orphanage, rather. And then, uh, he is called back to fulfill that task. That's standard, um, actions of the dead. Uh, there's Stiff Thompson entries all over it, if you wish, including, of course, ones in which one brother is dead and one brother is alive, and then they switch places where they both die at the end. Uh, it's all very standard. And I would point out that who are their great opponents in this? Not just the forces of Illinois law enforcement, which are um, the secular world, opposed to the church world, as as you say, the spiritual world, but also the Illinois Nazis. I hate Illinois Nazis. We all hate Illinois Nazis. They're the worst. And what are the Nazis? They are entirely the white imagery-wise. They are the thulist runic. They are the opposite of uh, smooth blues and R&B 
Martinism and uh, Vodun. They are uh, Thulist rune magic, and that is why uh, they are drawn gravitationally, if you will, to this phenomenon of the Blues Brothers reappearing. Robin. Right. Uh, and you can also see the uh, the power of incantation as the uh, Blues Brothers invoke their various greater powers along the way. Uh, you know, it's one thing to be uh, Jake and Elwood. It's quite another to be Cab Calloway or Aretha Franklin or James Brown. And uh, the Blues Brothers are uh, notable not just in this movie, but also in their uh, record briefcase full of blues that uh, preceded it, of always uh, correctly invoking uh, the powers that they are drawing down. So they are not, uh, unlike even a lot of much more famous uh, sort of blues rock people, they uh, always credit where the songs come from, and they uh, credit their uh, sidemen. And at the time, you know, the Stax uh, backing group uh, was not necessarily all that well known, and they even in the movie they uh, get a lot of uh, space and time, and they get to be characters, uh, which is uh, an act of uh, uh, not just uh, generosity of stars toward uh, uh, bit players, but of uh, truly elevating the source of uh, all of this magical power, because there's uh, the contribution of, uh, of uh, Black Americans to uh, music, of course, is the thing that is really being celebrated in that, and uh, brought to uh, hopefully a new audience, and uh, that is uh, the, the the greatest uh, work of magic at all. If you can uh, help uh, bring uh, the spotlight back to uh, these incredible figures, who at the time they managed to all get in this movie, it's really quite astonishing. All the in John Lee Hooker's right, yeah. in there. I mean, and it was 1980. This was before the the sort of revival of the blues. Uh, via you know your George Thurigans and your Stevie Ray Vaughns. This was a period in which the blues people thought was was dead. It wasn't it wasn't going to happen. It's sort of a, a weird that they didn't get BB King. That's always not that this is particularly occult, unless the missing king is part of the occult code. And I leave that to our listeners. Well, to he, he's for. in Memphis, so he's got Egyptian things to deal with. But he's but he's he's literally was I think in Chicago at the time they they filmed this. So who can say? I, I do want to uh, point out that the assembling of the of the band, as you point out, not just uh, credit to the great um, uh, Staxhorn's sidemen, but also uh, the classical uh, assembling of heroes before the, the the pilgrimage, the coming together of the Knights of Arthur, the assembling of the Argonauts. It's a very uh, old story that indicates you are on a sacred pilgrimage that you have to um, uh, uh, bring forth this this band of heroes who, while they can get you towards the goal, cannot carry over it because that is only for the Grail Knights slash uh, actually dead people to do. But the uh, combo sort of of the quest narratives, um, I, I think that locks in and that, that indicates that there's a narratological occult quality as well, that we're seeing sort of two sets of pilgrimage happen. Well, before uh, Carrie Fisher uh, comes at us with a rocket launcher, it's time for us to uh, quickly exit, and I think even rocket back in time. The Best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled 
F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English. That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astfageln on drive through Prevent time from running out for this podcast by joining forces with such Patreon supporters as... Joshua Blue. Graham Wills. Jack Gulick. Jacob Ansari. And Theron Bretz. Okay, so it's time for yet another segment of Ken and or Robin talk to someone else. And this time, Ken and Robin are talking to Jim Kitchen, auctioneer at the Gen Con auction. You have many other exciting nuggets in your CV, but this time we are here to regale people who are maybe uh, go to Gen Con or interested in gaming but have no idea uh, that this particular track exists because there's so many things that happen at Gen Con, and this one is particularly fascinating. So uh, perhaps you could kick off with... Just a description of what happens every year at the Gen Con auction. So the auction is, um, the auction and the accompanying store is a long-standing tradition at Gen Con that goes back to 1968. Um, it is a place where people with things they don't want anymore or things that they think have some value and they'd like to see to go to better homes bring things to either be sold in the store or sold through the auction. And so the auction consists of a number of categories, RPGs, miniatures, collectibles, uh, Tova, which is in itself a, a piece of performance theater, and then finally really culminating in our charity auction on Saturday night. So, so really and truly, um, you know, people bring things to the auction, and they may not fit exactly in the category that you would think. You know, um, RPGs are sort of self-explanatory. Miniatures are self-explanatory. We have people that bring things for collectible, and then as we are checking items in for the auction, if we see something of particular worth. Um, last year, we found a true first printing of the DM's guide in pristine condition and moved that into the collectibles auction. And so somebody who had brought something for $20 ended up making $370. So like an expert podcaster, <laughs> right. you've teased something which you now want you to pay off. Explain what TOVA stands for and what it is. So TOVA is the catch-all category for toys, oddities, videos, art, um, anything that falls outside of what you would traditionally think of as a category for an auction at a gaming convention. And so this can be dolls, this can be artwork, this can be signed pictures of Leonard Nimoy, CDs, sort of anything that shows up at the auction house that doesn't fall under RPGs, miniatures, and so on. So it's toys, oddities? Videos, artwork. It, it just is sort of a bit of a catch-all category. Right. Right. And, and this is a, a notorious performance theater in what way? Yes, and, and the two auctioneers that have been working Tova for, I would say, over a decade have a core audience that shows up every year. Um, there's all sorts of in-jokes. It is the closest to the Rocky Horror Picture Show that our auction house offers. Rocky Horror Antiques Road Picture Show. Yes, right. that's a very good description. And in fact... Um, you know, if you have some space on Saturday and you walk past the auction hall and you hear a loud, boisterous crowd, Tova is underway. Right. 
and uh, Tova uh, then is the is the lead in to the charity auction. Yes, is your uh, special bailiwick. Well, I, I've been very fortunate to work as one of the auctioneers for charity for the last few years. We've had a lot of success. Um, Gen Con picks the charities that receive money, uh, both from Gen Con as a whole, but then who we're raising funds for, and so. On Saturday night before the auction begins, we usually like to have representatives of the charities on hand to talk about what their charities do. Um, we found that that's really successful. The crowd wants to know where their money is going and, and how that money is going to benefit somebody. Uh, this year's Gen Con 2019 partners are Special Olympics Indiana and Game to Grow. And so the amount of money that we will raise Saturday night at the auction will then be divvied 50-50 between those two charities. So if you're headed to Gen Con in 2020 or some other year and you have you want to help a charity and you've got some stuff that you want to bring with you yes uh, that is a great way you know you might have not have cash on hand but you might have something super groovy in your closet that's uh, that's right and and so our regular auctions through the course of of the of the first three days of gen con if you want you can simply say i'd like to have this item sold through the store i'd like to have this item sold through the auctions and i'd like my proceeds to go to the charities and, right, and that's very easy, that's and, and and then those would be sold in the regular role playing or collectibles or correct. whatever auction, and then the money would just go to charity. That's right. right, and and particularly if you have a large, you know, I don't know if we play games or we collect games, but we always end up with more games than we ever have a chance to play, and this is a great way to see that go to a good home, but also the funds go to to a good charity. Right. So, uh, are there specific, you had to be there, oh my goodness, if you had been at the charity, this would have uh, rocked your world moments that you want to share so that people will be eager to rush up to the to the auction, whether it be a charity auction or a regular auction? I can think of a lot of moments. Um, you know, Tim Cask, who was an auctioneer at the, at the auction for almost 30 years, or maybe even more than 30 years, um, knighted a little boy about four or five years ago. Um, father was going through the divorce, was talking about it before the auction began. Um, somebody had donated, one of the exhibitors had donated a toy sword. Um, we auctioned it off for the boy, where he got the sword, but the proceeds went to charity. And then Tim knighted him in the, in the middle of the auction, and it was a really great moment, and his dad has been at the auction ever since. I tried to donate something every year that, that is mine, and so I went, I grew up in eastern Kentucky, and the very first convention that I went to was a little convention called Augury, which was put on in an agricultural hall in eastern Kentucky. And when I was cleaning out my grandmother's house a couple of years ago, I found the button that I had bought at the Augury show. Um, talked about it, and then auctioned it off last year, and it sold for more than $3,500. Wow. And, and that's a case where the auction has regulars. The charity auction, I, I mean, I should say, our auction has regular folks who, who what they do at Gen Con is they sit through the collectibles auction, they sit through the charity auction, and these are incredibly generous people. And when you have somebody that was in the U.S. Army and somebody who was in the U.S. Navy get into an inter-service bidding right. war... Right, yeah. That's um, like an Irish charity and, auction. And, and, and let me say that the fellow who won gave the other fellow the button. Ah, that's that's how you own them, and yeah. and and really and truly, you know, I see people when I'm walking through the hall who recognize me from the charity auction or the collectibles auction or the miniature auction, and and I may not know the names, but I certainly know the faces, and and again, these are people who travel from Detroit, they travel from the East Coast, and they come with money that they have saved all year long 
to find a way through the charity auction to give it to good people. And and let me speak to that. Last year set an all-time record for our charity auction. We hit $35,000 raised in the course of four hours. Um, that is a phenomenal amount of money. Yeah. I don't I don't know how we can hit that again, but we're going to try really hard. Well, I suspect it's going to come down to the auctioneer. Well, and, and if you don't, it's going to be their fault. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, no pressure. No pressure. You're the best, Ken. You're my favorite. So I'm, uh, I'm sure you can do it. Knock it out. Or well-heeled bidders such as yourself who could attend. <laughs> I'm a game designer, my friend. I don't know how many of those you know, but I, I let's know just say that Robin and I and uh, our, our colleagues, if we our, clubbed together, could have bought that button in Kentucky our, our, in 1983. Our, our, our only collectibles market is at the beginning of the stream. Not further down. So the the process of deciding what is a collectible or not, what sort of knowledge do people have to have in order to identify stuff that's so, coming in? So the first thing that I would say right off the bat, if if you have what you believe to be older TSR um, older collectibles from from the early first twenty years of, of role playing games. The number one site that that I cannot recommend enough is the Acaeum, and so the Acaeum is without a doubt the central repository for collectible knowledge within the role playing game field. Um, I heartily recommend that people take a look at that. If you come across a box of books that haven't been opened in twenty or thirty years, the first thing you should do is take a look at the AKM because they have absolutely the best information to determine is that DM's guide a, a first printing, is the Holmes box set a first printing, what do you have, what is it worth, and and those values are updated on a on a constant basis by a group of volunteers who follow auctions, follow categories, and try to make sure that the market values are on spot on. And this is sort of the Overstreet. Guide for yes. role-playing. Yes. And is it for all games or just RPGs? It's mostly, it's RPGs. Right. And so, so there isn't... That uh, mint issue, uh, sorry, then you got to figure out something. Right, about. you sort of have to look around. But I should say that the collectibles auction at Gen Con does see things like older games, particularly from the 20s, the 30s, um, you know, Cluedo, etc., where somebody has found something and brings it in, and we take a look at it and realize how old it is, and there's some noteworthiness, and and we will never suggest value. There, right. There's that's not our role. Our role is to sell it and try to get you the most money for it. But we, um, I should say, there's there's three or four of us at the auction who deal with collectibles, who are collectors, who have a good eye for immediately spotting something that might be miscategorized. I spoke earlier to a DM's guide, a true first printing DM's guide, where somebody had it um, in the regular role playing game section, and and if it had just gone through as a role, you know, on yet another copy of the DM's guide, maybe twenty, thirty dollars, but but three hundred and seventy dollars is is a much greater rate of return. Mm-hmm. But they didn't know that they had a first printing DM's guide, and so um, we do have people that bring things that know their worth. And that automatically go to the collectible section. So, for example, in 2019 for Friday Night's Auction, we have several very, very, very nice RPGA modules, which are very rare and very spendy. Um, we have, I saw coming in just a little while ago, a true first printing of the Holmes box set, which is the TSR Dungeons and Dragons box set that everybody knows with the red dragon, the knight, and the mag- and the fighter and the magic user on the cover. And so it is a true FR-115R, and it's in great shape. It's a collectible version of this. This isn't a tattered, corners, blown version. This is the one that if you wanted to jump into collecting TSR, 
this would be a phenomenal starting point. Mom took it away from them immediately. Right. Pretty much, pretty much. And so I imagine the fragility of boxes in box sets has a lot to do with why the ones that aren't busted are collectible. Well, exactly. And so one of the other folks that works at um, the charity auction is is renowned collector Bill Meinhart. Bill has actually been featured in in several interviews. He works alongside John Peterson. Bill he was had, in the Art and Arcana book. He was in the Art and Arcana book. Several of the things that were photographed in the Art and Arcana book were from uh, Bill's collection. Bill has the largest collection. Bill encourages people to, if they have an interest in something, to reach out to him. He's very generous about having people visit his collection and showing things. Um, he is, without a doubt, the person who had the foresight 30, almost 35 years ago, of really trying to save a lot of the history and heritage of the role-playing game industry at a time when no one cared. Mm -hmm. And we're very fortunate. Um, Bill has a tremendous amount of of correspondence from Gary Gygax. Um, He and another collector uh, bought Brian Bloom's collection when Brian decided he didn't want it anymore. Um, Bill is absolutely one of the stalwarts in the collectible market, and Bill has been a longtime volunteer at the Gen Con auction. I'm very lucky to work alongside Bill. So other than the items you've mentioned already, what are the, what's the flying Jenny of, uh, that's the upside down, uh, airmail stamp? Airmail stamp? What, so, what's the super collectible yes. so dropping? The Guiana Black Penny. So, so I think, I think there's a few things. Um, one of the things that people always are looking for is a nice wood grain box set version of, of Dungeons and Dragons. Right. And so there are several clearly defined, clearly able to choose between first, second, third printing. First printings have only gone up in value. In particular, uh, the Strong Museum of Play in Rochester, New York, has set the all-time realized price for a true, excellent first printing a few years ago at, I believe, $28,000. And so the demand, particularly as Dungeons & Dragons has exploded in interest in in regards to how Stranger Things has, has changed the market, the crush of people in the market, wood grain box sets there is always an audience for that. We had a second printing go two years ago for in excess of $3,500, $3,700. I can't remember the amount right off. But that is always something with some cachet. And, of course, collectors want the best versions possible. Right. Um, there are smaller print run things like Up the Garden Path, a module from the U.K., um, any of the early tournament modules, mm-hmm. uh, Lost Caverns of Sodge Camp, um, convention modules, in particular early convention modules, are highly desirable. This, by the way, is the point at which people who have roughly my amount of longevity in the hobby are going, I had the last Caverns of Saj Camp. Damn it! Yeah. Right, right. And so, and so those are things where as soon as one goes in the collectibles cabinet, there's a bit of a frenzy. Right. Um, there are things that I have always told people, collect what you love. Mm-hmm. That is the safest thing you can do because that way you're never if you buy it because cats and bourbon. That's, that's right. what you should collect. That's right. So so if you if you believe those are both renewables though. That's right. Yeah. They are a renewable resource. Believe me, farm cats. There's another litter. Um, but but you should never you should never buy things because you are thinking that this is your retirement fund. Right. You yeah. should buy this because you love it. Um, I have this is an interesting story. Grenadier, in an, in an effort to land the miniatures contract for TSR, um, many figs had had the license, but Grenadier desperately wanted it. And this is, of course, what led to the yellow box set, the gold right. box sets. Mm. And so um, I can't remember if it was Andrew Chernak, but, but essentially 
someone from Grenadier flew to Lake Geneva, walked in the door, and made had had made lizard man figures from the old TSR lizard man logo. And so everybody who worked at TSR got one of these miniatures. They're impossibly rare. In fact, I, I know a very good collector in Calgary. Um, Jeff has one, but his is in pieces. I have one still in the bag. There you go. And it and it took me ten years of really trying to hunt to find one. And you have the cold dead hand you pried it from. <laughs> no, 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 no. Yeah, um, that wasn't collectible. No, <laughs> but but I do have that, and and I'm a miniatures guy. Um, and and it, really, it's one of the linchpins of of my smallish collection that that I have. It's just nifty because he sculpted it from that black and white illustration that we're familiar with. Um, but it's just it's just great. And what's great about that is, like all great art stories, it's also about the time and place that it was made. That's right. It's That's not right. just oh, it's a cool lizard man. It's like oh, the guys that uh, they they really wanted the, the 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 deal. They made it from the logo. They gave it. There's there's you know nine rings for the dwarven lords. It's perfect. That, it's, and 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 truly, we all know that that sometimes to get a compromise or a, or, a, or a business agreement done, there has to be some graft. Right. And this is the best kind of graft, right? <laughs> this is lizard man lizard statues. This is, this is something I that can't tell expected. you how many lizard man statues are just sitting around in Chicago. Right. <laughs> well, it's known for that. Right, right? yeah, well, it is, absolutely. So from what is selling, it's pretty evident that there's a, a demographic of people who buy, that there are, you have to be old enough to have enough money to buy your expensive... Yes, bag. and so let me give one other preview. Let me give you one other preview of the collectibles auction on Friday night. We have the rarest of the rare, one of the rarest things I've ever seen within the miniature, within miniatures. Um, Did you know that Grenadier had the license for Disney? I did not know that. And so um, they had the license to make a range of Disney miniatures. There was only one box set that was ever made, and it was a Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. It came with a small little horrific thing of paints and a brush. Um, the Gen Con auction has only ever seen one. And we have a second coming into the auction this the second year. second Snow White set? The whole it's, the snow, it's the complete... It's not just Sneezy? Nope, 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 or Dopey, or right. or Grumpy, um, as I gestured to Kim. Um, but it is the rarest of the rare. And the collector who has brought it, he has spent the last four or five years trying to find another one to sell. And I have a feeling, I don't know where, what tree he shook to get this, but the miniature collectors will be out in force on Friday night. So uh, this will drop long after Gen Con, so we'll have to catch up with you later. Sure. And get we'll the rest find of that out story, story and find out, uh, yes. how, that, uh, how that went. So when uh, we reach the point uh, where people who remember and have a fondness for the early days of mm-hmm. TSR are uh, heading to spend their money on other things or to the or to the great gaming table in the sky. Do, are you sensing that there will still be more generations of collectors? Oh, absolutely. Be collecting the same things, or will they be collecting the things of their gaming youth? I, I think we have nostalgia. I think we will always have nostalgia. We will have people that are interested in what their parents were collecting. We have certainly second generation and third generation, starting to see third generation collectors. You can't predict what will be collectible. I think we've seen the rise in vampire collectibles. People from 20, 25 years ago that have very fond memories of Vampire the Masquerade are now seeking to fill holes in their collections or get the things that their parents would never buy them. And, and I think that's, I think that's a, it, it just varies. But, but early things will always have cachet. Early things will always have value. 
Well, we can keep talking about all this uh, exciting world of collectibles all day, but uh, we don't have all day because you've got to get back to the hall. I, I do, and let me just sum up real quick. One of the things that people don't realize about the Gen Con auction is that it has a store component, and and that is where we have sort of a reverse Dutch auction. It's items, prices on items drop over time. Um, sometimes exhibitors are a little troubled by this, but really what they should understand, what everybody needs to understand, is this is a key part of the Gen Con experience. You have people who are selling things so that they can raise money and turn right back around and go and to buy the more things. and buy yeah. more things and buy my new thing. I already right. got that's right, and you have everything. new things, yeah. and they will always be there. So, um, thanks for the chance to try to talk to the auction and be embarrassed by Ken. This is fabulous. Well, we cut probably we cut probably minutes of your embarrassment out of this. You're the best. Just tiny, the best. tiny fragments of your embarrassment will remain in the final mix. Oh, I love you too. And so, as promised, uh, here's uh, what the Snow White minis made. Uh, for an, an ultra rare item that is uh, sort of sideways to gaming, since it's by a famous uh, miniatures company, this made six hundred dollar runies. Ken, six hundred, big money. Uh, and speaking of big money, it's time for us to uh, propitiate the advertisers and then move on to another segment. Have you found the yellow sign? The King in Yellow, Robert W. Chambers' unearthly book, has inspired millions of readers since the death of the Gilded Age. A beautiful new edition from Arc Dream Publishing brings fresh potency to its stories of poisonous romance. This deluxe hardback features gold foil embossing in a leather cover in the black snakeskin pattern that Chambers described. A foreword by John Scott Tynes sets the stage. Annotations by Kenneth Height elucidate the secrets and histories of every Samuel Araya's full-color plates and charcoal illustrations evoke the otherworldly weirdness of Carcosa. Every print order comes with the PDF digital edition. The annotated King in Yellow insinuates itself into our reality in July 2019. The ball begins. It is time to don your mask. Join the masquerade at shop.arcdream.com. The clacking of time gears and the whirring of chronotons tell us that we're once more in proximity to Ken's time machine, which, of course, is the conveyance that Time Incorporated uses to send our hero back into history to bend, fold, spindle, and sometimes, yes, even mutilate it. And here, at the behest of Patreon backer Stuart Dollar, uh, well, here's the assignment. I'm in agreement with you on the generally awful reign of the Bourbon dynasty wherever they reigned. How would you prevent the Habsburg line from going extinct in Spain, and what knock-on effects would it have on future North and South American independence? Now, coincidentally, the episode that just uh, dropped last week uh, is our Live from Gen Con episode, where uh, it was established that the Habsburgs were sort of squishy aliens. So that before we move on to Stuart's question, my question is, is the nerd trope continuity the same as the Ken's Time Machine continuity, or is it like regular Marvel and Ultimates? Um, uh, these are uh, these are different continuities. These are different Marvel Earths. Um, we are not going to solve the problem of the Spanish succession by invoking their filthy alien DNA. For our purposes, we will treat the Habsburgs, mathematically at least, uh, as human. Now, to my mind, the question of, you know, which uh, early modern authoritarian monarchs in Europe were good uh, is a matter of degree. 
Uh, do you accept the premise, first of all, that the uh, Habsburgs were uh, better to be ruled by than the Bourbons? Um, I think unless you were Dutch, they were probably better to be ruled by than the Bourbons. The Habsburgs in Spain, and whether they just got lucky, as um, uh, the Count of Olivares said, God is Spanish, or if they were smart, which is a theory not entirely supported by the evidence, although there is a big body of revisionist literature uh, of uh, Philip of Spain and Charles of Spain that they uh, played a uh, they played a ridiculous hand as well as you possibly could. Um, but yes, I mean certainly the culture of Habsburg Spain is a superior uh, culture to Bourbon Spain. It's it's open. It's um, uh, as so often happens when you're a winning superpower, you tend to sort of buddy up to everybody and dump silver in their lap and be a good guy. Uh, they fought the Battle of Lepanto and, and broke the Ottomans. That was pretty great. Of them. I guess we should um, uh, throw some dates in here. So, yeah. so, so the Habsburgs ruled Spain from uh, 1516 to 1700. And this right. was their era of uh, colonial expansion, uh, uh, but also uh, a cultural efflorescence. So uh, this is a period of Cervantes and El Greco and Velazquez. And uh, so you don't often get a cultural efflorescence without... Uh, Money and leisure, and uh, Very obviously seldom. there are winners and losers in any uh, colonial expansion period and uh, any period where people uh, start to get uh, really rich. But this is seen as sort of one of the, the golden eras of Spain. And so th the challenge then to keeping it going past uh, 1700 is that the final Habsburg king in Spain is a bit of a problem. Yeah. As you can tell from his nickname, because he's Charles II, also known as Charles the Bewitched. And, and if you, if I'm going to have Which, a nickname. Which quite frankly is mean to the witches. <laughs> I, I can, I can just, if I was a witch, a Spanish witch, I would be saying, oh, that is not me. Well, it's supposed to imply that the, the, the witches have been mean to him. Yeah, well, the, the witches can say, I don't know, maybe don't marry your niece. Yeah. <laughs> maybe yeah, that's so, what. Yeah, so he's that's the product the of an are. uncle and, and his niece. One of the descript historical descriptions of him is that he was short, lame, epileptic, senile, and completely bald before 35. I think the last item on the list just mean. seems kind of pales. <laughs> yeah, they're just sort of yeah. sticking it in the ribs there. You know what that is? That's the player wanting those last three disadvantage points. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. So he, that's it's at the end because it's a quirk and it's only worth one point. I, right, yeah. I get you now. So he dies without an heir. At the age of 39 and 17. There's a shocker. Yeah. Uh, if it hadn't there, the air might have like four chromosomes on a gene. Yes. Might have also immediately died. Uh, well, whichever so, direction it goes. So my, my assumption here as we get to the time machine part of this is that you're going to have to go a little back further into the line to, uh, perhaps, uh, find a healthier branch uh, for the Habsburg tree than existed in our current timeline. Well, the simplest, uh, the simplest solution is in fact, uh, the correct solution. Uh, there is the first, the earlier son of King Philip IV, uh, and his wife Elizabeth of France, who is not any more than maybe his second cousin, uh, and that was good old Balthazar Charles, or Balthazar Carlos, as he is known. And if you are a Velasquez fan, you've seen him painted about eight million times. Uh, and he dies of, guess what, smallpox in 1646 at the age of 17, give or take. Uh, 16, I guess. And, uh, guess what? Curing smallpox in my remit as a time guy. Dr. Ken. Dr. Ken. Hey, Baltazar Carlos, enjoy this delicious potation of, um, uh, brandy and, uh, some other ingredients and, oop, hypodermic in your back. And there you go. Problem solved. Baltazar Charles does not die of the smallpox, lives to 
keep the throne. And as far as we know, since the Habsburgs right up until Charles were producing heirs, often under circumstances that probably do not bear close examination, but at least they popped out another relatively competent monarch again by the term, by the standards of monarchs. I think that Baltazar Charles is the, is the, is the easy fixed point there. And you continue with a, uh, a Spanish crown that is under the Habsburgs for at least uh, until they run out of um, uh, uh, convenient other people to marry. Uh, right. It's a, it's a race against genetic uh, reality. But um, so uh, the next question then, as it uh, so often is on Ken's time machine, are knock on effects. What happens uh, if, uh, if Baltazar Carlos uh, takes the throne and uh, without that pesky smallpox uh, uh, lives and continues uh, the golden age of Spain. I mean, the biggest, the biggest change is that there is no war of the Spanish succession, right? Uh, Baltazar Carlos lives. He has a successor. Their successor has a successor. There is no attempt to unify the Bourbon crown of France with a Bourbon claimant to Spain. And if there is, the Spanish, you know, they're, they're no longer the superpower that they were a few decades ago, but they are at least capable of seeing the French off. And so, uh, you have a very interesting situation where there have been Naval wars back and forth, little tiny ones between Britain and France before 1701. But the war of the Spanish succession is the first big world war that throws down who's on whose side and is Britain or France going to dominate, uh, basically the, not just, uh, Europe, but the world. Who's going to, who's going to get to colonize Canada? Who's going to get to own the, the rich parts of the, of the Caribbean? Those kinds of questions. And who's going to run India? Those questions are still going to come up. But are they going to come up in a tangled way that draws uh, Austria in, in the way that um, uh, it got drawn in on the side of the the British? Um, or is Austria going to come in on the side of the Spanish, their traditional ally, and against uh, the, the the hated British? Who can say? Um, it, it may be possible that the King of France, um, who is no idiot in 1701 or uh, much later, I, I guess they hold off until Louis the Sixteenth. He's kind of an idiot, but still. Um, it shouldn't be impossible to build another Catholic versus Protestant war instead of a war in which uh, England gets to come in and take the largest Catholic power on the continent off the off the deck. Um, so uh, Habsburg Spain that could come into the war allied with Bourbon France against uh, Protestant England, as again, uh, the Spanish and French did fight as allies against Spain later on. And that is partially because their king was a Bourbon, but partially it's because the Spanish and the French had a natural tendency to gang up on the big dog and the big dog naval navally at least was England. England and Holland of course had their own throwdown uh in roughly the same period that we're talking about as the Habsburgs are being replaced by the Bourbons, which is one reason the English don't get to come and stick their oar in, but it would be interesting to see uh, the, the Habsburgs in fairness were just as big a bunch of jerks to the Dutch as everybody, but it might have been possible to build a anti-English alliance even by incorporating the Dutch. And if you have the Dutch and the Spanish on the side of the French, then maybe England gets its ears pinned back. I don't think that that's a guarantee. I think it becomes much more of a, of, of a coin flip who wins the eventual throwdown between England and France, uh, because Spain could legitimately come in on either side. So that means that, uh, presumably, uh, uh in North America, at least that there's a, uh, a more, Extensive uh, French presence, more than just Quebec and uh, very possibly in Acadia. And given that the the anti Huguenot pressures on the French throne diminish somewhat if they're not leading a Catholic crusade against England, it's possible that they might have 
done the thing that every so often someone would suggest and say, you have all these Huguenots who you clearly don't want in France, send them to live in Canada. And indeed, Huguenots were forbidden in some, under some reigns from settling Canada, but, uh, in a world in which France needs to play their strategic game a little, uh, longer term, maybe they think the other way and they send the Huguenots out. Right. Cause of course their, their fear of having a Huguenot power in North America was greater than their greed for having more people to exploit territory. And, uh, mm-hmm. you would need the, them to be less worried about that, uh, for, for that to be a, a thing. The other question is, are there then bigger, uh, Spanish colonies in North America or do they just stick to the, uh, the more, uh, climactically, uh, favorable, less wintry, uh, areas that they did, uh, wind up settling? Well, in our history, the Bourbon period is the period during which the Spanish are expanding their presence up into, uh, modern day Northern California, the state of California. Um, and it is also the period, of course, in which the, uh, Navajo and the Hopi and the Apaches and the Comanches basically throw the Spanish out of the Southwest and New Mexico basically is, is turned back over to the natives, not officially, but it is. Um, uh, so there's sort of a swings and roundabouts moment there. Florida is going to be what it is. And again, it gets lost as a consequence of these North American wars that begin with the war of the Spanish succession. So the Spanish, I think by the time we're talking about have already sort of shot their bolt in terms of northward expansion, unless something happens in, for example, a, uh, a French or Spanish fleet decides to land in Ireland to support a Jacobite rising, for example. I don't think you're going to see the Spanish frontier move much farther north than St. Augustine in Florida. Uh, so the big takeaway is, uh, if you have one uh, group of authoritarian kings up against another group with other authoritarian Protestant kings over here and also over there, that who wins? Uh, it's, th- there's no utopia in the cards here. <laughs> no, it's just, no, <laughs> who, who gets to be the, the colonizer and, uh, uh brutally exploit, uh, all of this, these new resources and introduce and spread smallpox and all of these things. So it's, is there like Velasquez Jr.? Do we have a, a, a two more Cervantes? What do we, uh, uh, what did you get out of this when you tried it? And you must have switched it back. Wasn't that, was it not clearly that, uh, a big uh, change? Well, you, you switch it back because, um, uh, as you know, Robin, um, if you have a stronger Spanish presence in California and a stronger French presence in Quebec and, uh, Louisiana, you don't get the United States of America. And I'm very fond of the United States of America, which produces such miracles as Coca-Cola and Elvis. Yeah. You, you might have the, the chorizo instead of the hot dog. Exactly. And, and, and while I'm a big fan of the chorizo, you got to have the hot dog. So the, um, so the question is, you know, not is Elvis worth, uh, Velasquez Jr.? Answer is obviously. But, uh, the question is, have the Spanish sort of shot their cultural bolt, even if they're still under the reign of the Habsburgs? And I think that you see less internal paranoia, but not none, because people forget that although the first bunch of Habsburgs were pretty chill about the the Jews and the Moriscos, as they became more and more Spanish, uh, they became less and less chill and caused almost as many problems inquisition wise, for example, as uh, their four, their predecessors and their successors did. Right. Because we've, we've been doing this long enough that there are now sub genres of uh, time machine questions. Right. And one yes. of the sub genres is, can you extend this golden age? And mm-hmm. I think what we've learned from, from history is that golden ages are short. Yeah. As we may be discovering. 
<laughs> we may be living through the end of the Golden Age. Who knows? Let's hope not. Who knows? I'm sure you're not referring to the Golden Age of role-playing games, which is yes. continuing ever stronger. Yes, they will They will continue uh, past the death of all saltwater fish. Um, but right. in general, that the uh, having uh, an economy and relative uh, liberality of rule that creates a platform for uh, cultural innovation. And sometimes the cultural innovation comes out of horror and death as well, of course. Uh, but uh, the more uh, Pacific periods when culture flowers uh, tend to be uh, kind of short because uh, uh, history has a way of uh, kicking you in the leg. And by leg, I mean somewhere else. Right. Uh, and the lesson of history is if it's not one thing, Ken, it's another. It's another. And I think this is probably what, what would happen if you made that uh, time travel jump. But uh, another lesson of history is that if it's not one episode of Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff, it's the one that will be dropping a week from now. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Ask the Gown. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Simple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. It's dark out. Fill this podcast tank of gas while wearing sunglasses alongside such Patreon backers as... James Stewart. Jason Franzella. Michael Dinos. Andrew Carey. And Derek McMullen. Festoon yourself with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Check out our latest design, Polyp Fiction. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff.